opening a venue is a little bit like sending a rocket to the moon. If the aim is out by thousands of a degree, you miss the moon by thousands of miles. Your goals and your targets, those goals have to be precise and they have to be understood by everyone. Otherwise, if not everyone understands them and buys into them, you won't reach them. Welcome to Upon Arrival, a show that uncovers stories and strategies that make up all the moving parts of business events tourism with me, Adelaine Ng. There's nothing like a crisis to expose who the real leaders are, the people we can look up to when the rubber hits the road and the path is uncertain. But what or who does that look like when your business can't run because travel and events are restricted? I looked around and, well, I didn't need to look far. Jeff Donaghy is one of the rare leaders who manages to inspire even when things get difficult. He stands out as a gentle giant in the industry and has gained even more loyalty from his team during the pandemic. And somehow, that doesn't surprise people who've been in the industry and known him for a long time. Jeff's credentials are significant, and there are quite a few, so I've put them in the show notes. But amongst them is his role as CEO of the International Convention Centre, or ICC Sydney, which was hosting and running hundreds of events annually before COVID hit to bring everything to a standstill. He's also Group Director of Convention Centres Asia-Pacific for ASM Global, the world's biggest event and venue management company. And of course, there's his most recent credential, an induction into the US-based Event Industry Council's Hall of Leaders, effectively a Lifetime Achievement Award. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. And first up, can I say congratulations on that Lifetime Achievement Award, an admirable milestone. How surprised were you when you found out? Adelaide, thank you, and great to be talking to you. Absolutely surprised. I had no idea that it was being considered, that a submission on my behalf had been lodged with the Events Industry Council. But as I've said at the time and said many times since, the recognition by one's peers and industry colleagues is the most rewarding of all, but also the most humbling as well. But hopefully it doesn't signal the end of my career just yet. <laughs> I was going to point you that a little later on, but did that come with a plaque of some kind that you can put on your mantle, something to hang on your wall? There was a presentation ceremony in Las Vegas in conjunction with the IMEX trade show event, which obviously I couldn't join, but I joined digitally and had an acceptance speech recorded and played at that as well. So I was there virtually, but unfortunately not in person to meet with my friends and colleagues from around the world. Well, the award recognizes your leadership, and that's what we're hoping to learn from you in this interview. You've been a strong voice and advocate for the industry, so you've been leading for a long time. What drives your passion? Well, passion for this industry emerged probably early on in my career. I started life as a school teacher, actually. Oh, did you? Yes. Uh, a year in a one-teacher school in the bush, a year at primary school teaching, and then a year what were called special opportunity schools in the state of uh, Queensland, which I had no special qualifications for, but I was seconded to that. I then took a year's leave, went back to Cairns in far north Queensland, where I'd spent the early part of my life. And through a number of steps, which would probably take us the rest of the afternoon to describe, but it was at a time of very, very exciting uh, tourism growth for Cairns. Cairns took over ownership of its airport and turned it into an international airport. What I realised then, just to the abbreviated version of this, I ended up through a number of jobs in an airline, hotels. Actually, my first job in the industry was washing dishes in a restaurant. So that was a crash course in, in, in Cairns. I had a job as a cocktail waiter coming up, but they said, we need a dishwasher for a, a month or two. So I said, I'd be happy to do that. And, you know, got hooked on the real buzz of restaurants and uh, hospitality. 
But then I was running the tourism bureau in the region when Cairns was growing very, very strongly in terms of its visitation, you know, the Barrier Reef and the rainforest. What I started to realise looking around the world, that cities were successful, invariably had a broad-based visitor industry, not just based on leisure. And invariably, that broad-based included conventions and exhibitions, what we now call business events. And fundamental to that was the need for a signature world-class convention centre. By perfect timing, Cairns was then becoming eligible for a casino licence. Through a whole lot of lobbying I did through the local member, who was also the state treasurer and other organisations, we managed to secure the fact that the casino licence, the money for the casino licence was to go to building a convention centre in Cairns. And of course, that was the gestation of the Cairns Convention Centre, which has you know, had 25, 26 highly successful years of operation uh, since then. And I was asked to come and run it. So that was my introduction into not just managing convention facilities, but great exposure to the immense benefit that business events bring to the host city and the host community. And that's what's driven me, that need to make a difference in uh, communities really since then. Correct me if I'm wrong, you went from washing dishes to running the region's tourism bureau. I think you might have skipped a few things. Can you fill in that gap? Yeah, sure. There's a gap of quite a few years. But when I arrived in Cairns, I went in a pub-type hotel, then worked for an airline, what was TAA, then became Australian Airlines, which of course merged with Aquatus. But I was in the holiday travel division doing hotel negotiations, allotment negotiations. So that exposed me to that whole point of travel, travel with a purpose. Then the first international resort that opened in Cairns, up until then, you know, most of the businesses and the hotels were owner operators. But this was the first one, the Ramada Reef Resort at Palm Cove. And I was asked to join that as the sales and marketing director. And that, you know, that was very, very successful. I was asked at the time, uh, you know, what's the secret to being a successful sales and marketing director for a hotel? And I did point it out slightly tongue in cheek, you know, join a hotel that's going to be successful. <laughs> it was an idea that whose time had come, you know, Cairns was growing and needed that big step up into that international standard accommodation. It was the first of its type. I was there for about three years. And from there, on the board of the Regional Promotion Bureau, Tourism Bureau, eventually was asked to come and manage it as well. And from there, going back to the steps we mentioned, ended up overseeing the development and the successful operation of the Cairns Convention Centre. Our company, which is now part ASM Global, and we're the Asia-Pacific division of that, is now the biggest venue management company in the world, of course, so there was a number of steps in that as well. But when I joined, we really only had two venues, the Cairns venue, a small shareholding in the Brisbane Convention Centre and the Brisbane Entertainment Centre, or two and a half venues, really. But then it grew really quite exponentially. And I was very lucky to be in that position where I was able to grow, you know, with that intrinsic corporate growth of the, uh, the company to get it where it is today. But what I've really enjoyed most of all, well, in fact, just I'll wander back one step further as well. And I never tire of, of sharing this story, is that I realized very, very early on in my transition into being a manager, and it was like a, you know, a revelation that came to me in those early stages. From that point on, as a manager, Everything I was going to be judged on, everything I was going to be assessed on, had to be delivered by other people, not by myself. So I realized then that if I was going to do one thing and one thing only in my management career, and that was to be very good at finding the best possible people, and then be very good at giving them the best possible environment to become even better. That involves you know, a whole range of things like clarity and certainty and confidence, and, but mixing all of that with kindness and compassion as well. I have you know, a mantra of, of five C's of successful leadership. What I also increasingly point out these days is that leadership isn't so much something that you do, it's the outcome of what you do. And I think the three things that a leader has to do is to do what's needed, to do what's right, and to do it together. 
That's my three-part mantra of, and if you do that, you've created an outcome of successful leadership. To do what's right, you know, what's right for the company, to do what's right for the law, but do what's right for yourself as well, to follow your moral compass, you know, what you know is right. But most importantly of all is to do it together. And if you don't do it, if you're not taking the team with you, if the team don't buy into those goals and those hopes and aspirations, you end up just, you know, spinning your wheels or going around in circles. So that's a short synopsis of what's been a, a very long, very rewarding and very enjoyable career. But what is, I think, so forward thinking of you is just that place of being comfortable and being secure in your own self, because a lot of leaders, you know, whether they've earned that role or not, they feel like that the outcome is dependent on them. So they're not thinking so much as team, but the team is there to help you achieve the goal that you want. And that's sometimes a personal career goal. It's a different space to be thinking about how can we, everybody win in getting towards the outcome that we all want to achieve. I mean, where did you learn that from? Probably from experience, from watching, learning. I haven't really had any direct mentors in my career. I've had a, some people that have I've been able to watch and observe and, and learn from uh, through that period. But I have a great punch out for sharing mottos and slogans with my team. I often get accused of still thinking I'm a school teacher. <laughs> but one of the great ones, two great ones that have driven us and driven me and venues to drive our team is that it's amazing might have been uh, Truman, the president. I can't remember exactly who said it. Well, three things, actually, I'll share. One is, it's amazing what you can achieve if you don't care who gets the credit. Awesome. And it goes back to that that initial learning that what I was going to be judged on had to be delivered by other people. And, and any credit that might have come my way, I made sure was absolutely shared with the team, those that actually uh, deliver it. You know, and the other one is, and this one I do know who the author was, it's Einstein, and that is that if you can't explain something simply... You probably don't understand it well enough yourself. And the third one, I mentioned there were three. I have a punch out for doing things in threes, of course, as well. Yes. But the other one is that there's no such thing as a successful convention center. There's only successful clients. So we use that as a more than a motto. It's a deeply embedded philosophy in any of our team. You know, that's what we're there to drive is the success of our clients. And if everything we do is driven by that, it's a win-win-win situation. And of course, the venue is going to be successful by whatever measure it's judged by. But first and foremost, it's about the clients and making their events successful. But then also the other thing, and I mentioned this at the start, but just to circle it back, to make sure in everything we do, and using ICC Sydney as an example, everything we do is about making a difference. You know, making a difference to our community, uh, making a difference to the economy of the state, because that's why billions of dollars are invested in these uh, projects making a difference in, in every aspect of the community that we can connect with the venue and the events, you know, our legacy uh, program, making a difference to our team, that there's somewhere where they can achieve, they've got that certainty, they're treated with respect and courtesy. And if you marry all that together, you've got a very powerful force, I believe. It seems like you're this natural-born leader that somehow managed to embody the greatest of why leadership is wonderful when it's really good. Do you think, I mean, there's this ongoing debate whether leadership is a force of nature or a force of nurture. What do you believe about that question? That's the eternal debate, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, look, it's a combination of the two. If someone doesn't have the intrinsic, no matter how deeply hidden, the intrinsic ability to rise to that level and those, that performance, no amount of training or courses or, or education is going to achieve it. But at the same time, not everything you do in leadership comes naturally. So reading, training, education, watching, learning, having, having mentors, if that's the things that you find you uh, react to, 
all of those things go absolutely uh, into the mix. There's still things that I learned in teacher training, and I won't mention how many years ago that was, that, that pay me in, in good stead, you know, even now through my career, that voice projection and communication, even though it was with children, the principles are the same. But one thing I did learn, and I, I enjoy sharing this with people as well, and something you really learn uh, learned in teacher training is that while occasionally it's valuable and useful to appear angry, whatever you do, never get angry. And if there's one thing that I can share that sometimes my teams comment on me that I always seem to be calm and control. And that's because if you're angry or frustrated, and I, and I make sure our team, particularly in this last 12 or 18 months, are, are seen as beacons of calm and confidence, you know, because if the leaders, if the leadership team and the supervisors and the managers are, are running around and looking like they're panicking and knowing what they're doing, that'll infect the whole team. So when you become angry, you lose any hope of controlling a situation, any hope of coming up with solutions. And it means you're focusing inwards and on yourself rather than outwards and what has to be achieved by your team. And, you know, but to do that consistently as well, you know, you can't afford bare head days. You forgive them <laughs> in your team because, you know, people have six children or they've missed the bus on the way to work. And you have to take all of that into account because you're dealing with human beings. And ultimately, when all of that is said and done, one of the most important platforms underpinning that is kindness and compassion. And if anything that I've admired in strong leaders is successful strong leaders but also have that very strong element of kindness and compassion in what they do. So does Jeff never get mad? <laughs> or if he does, what does he do about it if he's trying to exude this endless supply of calmness and confidence and, you know, never a hair out of place? Well, hairs are often out of place, but <laughs> it, yeah, no, look, and I realise it does sound a bit Pollyanna-ish, but it does take a fair bit of work. And one of the jokes I've used, it's a terrible joke actually, is that that quite often, particularly in these frustrating past year, two years, when I have a really challenging day, I go home and kick the dog like anyone else would until my wife pointed out to me that we don't actually have a dog and I needed to go and oh. apologise to the neighbours. But it's just a metaphor. I would never never condone cruelty to animals, of course. But no, you, you have to not bottle up those things, but you have to control those things. And that energy that you might have channeled into you know, anger or frustration. Another one of the things I try and instill in myself as well is worrying never solved anything. And there's ultimately a solution to everything. The only variables are time and money. So if you identified a solution and you don't have the money, as long as you explain that to people, you mightn't solve that now because of certain circumstances which should always be explained. But in 12 months' time, you know, that's something that we can have achieved partial solution to. And, and most solutions are compromises. But to bring the team with you, to have strong teams, you know, going back to that principle of, you know, right at the beginning of my career that I mentioned, and never to get hung up on who gets the credit. You know, the team gets the credit because teams succeed together or they fail together. You know, one, you've got to also guard against silos happening. And I also point out that there's no such thing as a successful department because one department in a team can't be successful and the other one not. It's a bit like in a cricket team. And I did learn some lessons from my sporting career as well. And to use that great Australian sport of uh, cricket, pretty timely seeing we've just won something for, for the first time yeah. recently. <laughs> yes, <laughs> poor New Zealanders. Yes, you can't have a successful opening bowler unless you've got a successful wicketkeeper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because the wicketkeeper drops all the catches. The, wicket the fast bowler doesn't capture any wickets, you know. So it's that combination of everyone. Actually, I'm starting to remember a lot of the stories. Another one of my... Oh, please tell. Another one of my favourite ones. And I use this particularly at the start of operations with people, and there's a lot of messages embedded in this one, is that opening a venue and operating a venue is a little bit like sending a rocket to the moon. If the aim is out by a thousandth of a degree, you miss the moon by thousands of miles. Your goals and your targets, 
you know, corporate goals in the first planning period, which is usually 12 months in our businesses, then three years and five years or even, even longer. Those goals have to be precise and they have to be understood by everyone. Otherwise, you'll, you know, if not everyone understands them and buys into them, you won't reach them. The other thing I point out as well, and it goes back to the, you know, the concept of teamwork, is that there's probably a thousand critical moving parts in a rocket. And if one fails, the rocket usually fails. And I use that as a metaphor for every single role in a team. And, you know, we're building progressively back to around about 350, 400 full-time staff and a casual pool of about 1,200 here at ICC. Every single one of those roles is important. It doesn't matter how good the CEO thinks he or she is. If the receptionist is rude to someone ringing in to make a booking, or if the cleanliness of the place isn't right, that's what the opinion of the venue will be based on. So I make sure that it's deeply embedded into our culture and philosophy that every single role in the place is of great importance and equal importance. A bit like the rocket going to the moon. I was just talking to my husband the other day and we were observing some of the friends that we knew from childhood and how sometimes the very thing that you want and you chase after becomes the thing that you can't achieve, you can't get, because you want it so much. And I think that's applicable even to leadership. So sometimes if it's an award that somebody really wants or a particular achievement or to be recognized in a particular sector, and if that becomes the sole goal, sometimes you can be denied it because you want it so much and you put into what sort of becomes the reality is your actions are actually selfish and that's what becomes unattractive to other people. But I think in your story, you've shown how when you approach teamwork and helping everybody win with you, then everyone's supporting each other. And somehow you've emerged as the leader and you've emerged as the person that does get recognized for your achievements, for your leadership in the sector. And I think that's a really valuable lesson for a lot of people. Is that something that you would agree with? Oh, absolutely. And I think what you've identified there is if your focus and your ambition and your hopes and your aspirations and your waking hours are delivered, achieving something specific, particularly if it's something for yourself, that's a flawed model. You've launched the rocket, not aiming it properly at the moon. And I think that's absolutely right. I've never applied for any award in my life. People have done it on my behalf. And usually if they ask me, I try and talk them out of it. But I get immense enjoyment in seeing our team get recognised, to seeing our individuals in our team, particularly those younger emerging managers, being uh, recognised as well. So just circling back, that's what made the Hall of Leaders so surprising, but also so uh, gratifying to have received that. This is a little bit of a side look into the industry, but I'm sure you've overseen a lot of investments into convention centres over the years. I wanted to ask you what you thought, you know, turned out to be real duds. There must have been some in that time. And how, in hindsight, when you looked at those decisions, how that now shapes how you make decisions whenever you're presented with an opportunity to invest? Well, certainly as a company, we get involved in projects that are signature projects in signature cities, and particularly those where we can make an appreciable difference, appreciable and appreciated by the owners. Going back, say, over the last decade or so, there, there was certainly a lot of sort of cargo cult thinking about uh, convention centres, uh, you know, just build it and they will come. But there's a whole lot of aspects. First of all, there are so many other elements in the primary package of, of attracting successful events, you know, is, is access, you know, the availability of other attractions, the appeal of the other uh, destination. And unless all of those elements are there, you know, the venue is not going to be successful. Then at the next level, venues need to reflect 
you know, what people are expecting to find in that community, in that destination, in that culture. And to build what has been described at times in the past, out-of-town venues for out-of-towners pretty much dooms them to failure. So, you know, the, the, the location has to be right. The location of the destination has to be right. There are so many elements that go together to make that successful. But then also that the venue needs to reflect inside and outside and its connections with the community. And they have some exposure and to have some commingling with that community as, as well. And I think those elements all line up. A city or a state or, or a nation is well on the way to establishing a successful convention centre. Then, of course, if they hire a highly experienced venue management company, that gives them an even better success. So <laughs> whatever the model is, you know, it needs to be done cohesively and collectively and in collaboration with not just the industry in that town, but the community in that town as well. You talk so much about community, even when you first discussed the importance of team. I'm just wondering where such a strong affinity to community came from. I grew up in country towns in the early part of my life in small country towns. You know, I went off to a boarding school and as I mentioned, I played a lot of sport as a youngster and into my teenage and early years. In smaller towns, there's that sense of community. My father was a head teacher and my mother was a, a really highly respected nursing sister. So if I think about that and, you know, I've had people come up to me 10, 15 years later and tell me that they were taught by my father. And while they mightn't have thought so at the time, they realise now the, the great lessons in life and, you know, how he set them on the right path. To hear that made me realise that long-term effects of what you do are incredibly important and to think of the long-term. I've also had people tell me that, you know, they were nursed by my mother and sometimes she was even better than the local young doctors who were working in the hospital at the time <laughs> with her knowledge. So I saw my parents. To me, it, you know, it wasn't something I thought of as being different or unique. I mean, that was just the way that the family worked. And I guess if I thought back on it, I'm probably thinking that, you know, for maybe the first time, I was, I was probably, you know, some of those values and features were embedded in my makeup at that time. I, I was a bit ironically and paradoxically, I was a very shy and introverted youngster, but had a great lot of success in team sports, ironically enough, not individual sports. So, so I love the concept of working in a team. You know, I mentioned cricket, but in, in any of the other sports that I played, you know, it was all about the team. You couldn't, you know, you didn't come off the field and get an individual award for what you did. You came off the field with the team either having won or lost. And as I pointed out, you know, early on in the conversation here, you know, a convention centre team or a business team, you succeed together and you fail together. Does that start to explain it? No, yes. I think that clearly gives us an idea of where all those values came from. And I think it's when you are in your early years, that's when the experiences that you have, whether it's within your family or within your community or whether it's within group sports, they really have a long-lasting impact on who you do become later on in life. So I, I think that's just become evident from what you've just shared. So that's been really interesting. Look, even just another little anecdote that suggested itself to me. I was sent to a one-teacher school in my second year of teaching, and I was 20 years old. And, you know, the only teacher in a small farming country community is a pretty important role. And one that, you know, I hadn't been trained for, but it was sort of on the job training, I guess, of a responsibility and sense of community and, and, and probably in its own way, a, a sense of leadership as well. It's amazing. I think as we get older, sometimes we tend to look back and see how those really early experiences have played such a huge role in who we are today. So it's an amazing message to people who are in positions of leadership now and the opportunity and the power almost that they hold to kind of play a really important role to those who are under their care. When you talk about leadership, there was one huge 
event. <laughs> I don't think you'd have to guess which event that was that challenged a lot of leaders. And that was March 2020 when COVID hit the world and it hit all of us by surprise. So ICC Sydney was just about two years old at that time. Where were you, you know, mindset wise, because you were suddenly faced with this enormous challenge? A lot of leaders were. So how did you approach the challenge? How did you navigate that time? And how did you bring team together? Let me just share something quickly that's, that's come back to me as well before I move into that. I was in Cairns and running the Tourism Bureau, and tourism was the primary industry and the major industry in that Cairns region, a role that came with a lot of responsibility during the pilots dispute in the late 80s. And, you know, 95, 98% of, of visitation and tourism into Cairns came by plane. So we went for a couple of months and we didn't know how long it was going to last. So I guess to me, that was a crash course in leadership to establish the fact that this was going to finish. There was a way out. We needed to work towards that and we needed to work together. But just coming back to March and an announcement, we had no idea what was going to happen next. As you'd remember, we all used to gather around the computers and TV sets for that. The daily ad was at the time from the Prime Minister's media conferences to work out what the next thing was. The one thing that I had to impart to people, to our team and to the senior team, is that this will finish. There will be an end to this. Every, every crisis finishes. Yes. You know, what we need to do is to keep a very clear eye on that, to do the steps that we can do, not to panic, to be that beacon of confidence. During that period, we had to do, which is one of the toughest things, probably the toughest things that a CEO or a manager can do, and that was to let people go, to let staff go. So... We had to do a fairly major, and we're talking about last year, not this recent bout, this second wave of Delta-driven things, because we had no idea what was at the end of it, how long it was going to be. We knew we were losing business. We took a decision not to officially close the centre, and our owners, both the private consortium and the government partners in the PPP, agreed with that. We were only able to deliver virtual events but with our relationship with the health department. We did about 150 of those in the last financial year. But at the same time, we had to take responsible measures to cut costs. So we had to go through a, a very transparent and fair process to let a considerable number, about a third of our full-time team, and of course, no work at all for uh, the casuals. And that's one of the toughest, hardest things that you know anyone in management can do. But we did it with fairness and transparency. You know, We even had people thanking us for the way that they'd been treated, even though we'd taken their livelihood away from them by necessity. So I think that was a good example of the way that if you do things clearly, you do things with compassion, but you do things still very firmly and, and explain it transparently, that's the best approach that you can possibly take in incredibly difficult circumstances. How did you do that? I mean, that's probably the trickiest thing for a lot of CEOs, a lot of heads of departments. It's the, you know, they want to do the considerate thing when they need to let staff go, but they're more concerned about what they're going through, because they're not sure of their own positions. So that doesn't come off necessarily always very nicely. But when you are trying to do the responsible thing and do it with compassion, what did that look like within ICC Sydney? I mean, did it come in the form of a very well-worded letter or did that come in the form of a really nice farewell gift? You know, what did that look like? There are a number of steps. First of all, you know, in the lead up to it, before we knew what the exact decision we had to make was to make it very clear to people that decisions like this were having to come up, that it was going to be done fairly and equitably. It was done personally with a personal follow-up letter. The offer advice of counselling services and career counselling advice as well, those, those services as well. But to make it very, very clear to people that this was something that absolutely had to happen, 
it was no reflection on them personally. It was a reflection on the position that they had was deemed to be in those categories of, of roles that weren't needed at this stage and weren't going to be needed for some time in the future. So look, just to do it very, very firmly, you know, very deliberately, but also to do it with, as I keep coming back to kindness and compassion and uh, explanation. And for myself and for our leaders to be involved in it directly as well, you know, not to be front and centre of that process and explanations and uh, communications. You know, we had quite a number of team meetings. I send a, a weekly update, which we started at that time and have continued ever since to the whole team, a CEO update because of the nature of our business and shift work and, and, a, and a large venue. At various times during that, it was a recorded message to personalise it a little bit uh, more. Because, you know, I often get asked during this, what's the most important lesson you've learned during this period? And I said, there's two lessons. The first one is I've learned how to pronounce epidemiologist. <laughs> and I also realised how many of them there were out there. But secondly, the incredible importance of communication, but real proper communication, honest, not resiling, not sort of glossing over any facts when something had to happen, being very honest about the situation and what had to happen as well. But also probably communication with myself, actually. You know, like waking up in the morning and realising the, you know, the day of the week I had ahead of me and making sure I communicated with myself the, this incredible sense of responsibility I had and what the people that relied on me to be that firm and clear beacon of calm and confidence, if I like. I keep coming back to that phrase as well. And that was incredibly important. Mightn't have always felt that on the inside, but always had to appear that on the outside. That's amazing because it was a mentally challenging time for a lot of leaders at that time because you had staff who were relying on you for that leadership and, you know, what's going to happen to us? Do we still have a future? All those questions. So it sounds like what you did was do what you could do, which was to take things one step at a time and take each day as it came and each week as they came as well. You really, you know, I mentioned the, the concept of long-term goals. There was a long-term expectation that this was ultimately going to finish. We made sure we had one foot in the, in the present and managing that as best we could in all the ways we've just spoken about. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure that we had one foot in the future as well. We kept our business development team, our marketing, our branding. We communicated very, very regularly with clients, and that's been commented on numerous times by clients, how much they appreciated that. We kept in touch with them. It wasn't about asking, you know, when are you going to come back and have a business with us? It was just, you know, we're in this together. How are you? Exactly. So that communication was incredibly important. But then we also communicated with the team, you know, what was happening in terms of business for the future, you know, measuring events that cancelling but postponing, you know, and sharing that data with our team, the existing team, to let them know that, you know, there was a future and that we were working towards that future. We're doing what we could in the terrible present, but we also had a very strong focus and one foot firmly planted in that future as well and, and uh, sharing that data. One little thing that started to emerge is that people we had to let go during that period and people that have gone off to take employment in what they would perceive as more stable industries, understandably, are now starting to come back to us as we're rebuilding our team. So we see that as probably a wonderful practical endorsement of the culture that we have here. And people are saying that, you know, we had to go and work somewhere else. We had to put a roof over our head and pay the rent and feed the children, feed the dogs, those terrible dogs that I kicked out of the way. <laughs> But as soon as there's an opportunity to come back, they're grasping that uh, opportunity as well. Uh, look, this, and I've been through, as I say, I mentioned the pilot's dispute, and there was absolutely disaster. There was just no business at all. And been through the GFC, been through the Asian meltdown, been through, you know, but none of them. And, and, and I shared those stories with people, you know, that ultimately these things finish. 
So you need to be well and truly embedded in the now and the present and manage that as strongly and as compassionately as you can. But you also need it to look beyond the horizon. Otherwise, when it stops, it's a bit like the floodlights coming back on and people are startled by it and are surprised. But we're ready for it and, and we've been ready for it all the way through. So that's been incredibly uh, important as well. Also recommended to people, particularly the younger managers, that this is going to be the biggest challenge and crisis they will have in their careers. So make sure they treat it also as a learning experience as well and to learn from it. You know, to learn intrinsically in yourself, you know, what did you do well? To be honest with yourself as well, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? I just reminded myself of another great phrase that we, uh, that we use here quite a lot, and that's CSI. They have their CSI moments, they have CSI meetings, they have CSI ideas, and it's constant small improvement. That's a good one. And I mentioned that into the whole team in team meetings. Everyone in this whole team, when there was several hundred of us, makes one small improvement once a week or once a month, and we continue to do that, have that deeply embedded in our culture, we'll just continue to get better and better and better, and circumstances will never overtake us. That's a great motto. If I could ask you what is a leadership value that you think has served you the most in your career so far, what would you say that is? The ability to learn and adapt, probably as much as anything, to read a situation. I've got to answer a whole lot of things, but they go to the same point, is to look for the solution in everything, not worry about anything, just, you know, I would worry if I never did enough to solve a problem. I never worry about the problem itself, because I've never found a problem that got solved by worrying about it. If I could answer it in in two parts, apart from the three mantra of do what's needed, do what's right, and do it together, the first one is clarity and certainty about where you're going. You're taking people on a journey and, you know, you don't load the family up in the car and say, we're going for a drive and end up in Newcastle when you really want to go to Wollongong. You have to have destinations clearly defined. So clarity and certainty, but make sure it's totally underpinned and totally embedded and viewed with kindness and compassion. We started this conversation by talking about your Lifetime Achievement Award. And for a lot of people, a Lifetime Achievement Award is a signal for retirement soon. Now, you look way too young for that. But I'm wondering how you think about your own legacy for the industry. And if so, what do you hope that would look like? I think I could put that simply. I think when people do talk about me, and they probably talk about me a lot now, but uh, not to my face. <laughs> look, I think if people do talk about me, uh, that they say, and if they meet my children in 10 years' time and say, he made a difference. He made a difference to the industry he was in. He made a difference to the venues he was part of made a difference to the teams that he was privileged to work with. But basically, he made a difference. That's all I've set out to do. Jeff, that sounds a lot like what you said earlier about how you remember your parents and how other people said your parents made a difference in their lives. You've seen how important that is to community. So once again, we're circling back to community, which is amazing. I have to ask, you know, Australia's international borders will be opening up in a couple of weeks. We're all keeping our fingers crossed. And that would be amazing for the industry. Where is your favorite destination? I mean, the first place that you would be booking a ticket to as soon as you get a chance to, for leisure reasons. Well, my mother was Italian. She came to Australia when she was eight years old. So I grew up strong Italian uh, culture. And my father's parents were Irish. So I had that combination of Irish and Italian. And the first time I went to Italy, I had that feeling that I was at home. And a similar feeling in, in Ireland. And I, I've traveled much more in Italy than I have in Ireland. But, you know, like most couples, our leisure travel is, is totally determined and dictated by my wife. And she, <laughs> she, uh, she absolutely loves, uh, loves Europe as well. And luckily I get to go there or was going there and, and will go back there again. Uh, for business purposes, you know, Barcelona is a, is a beautiful city. 
you know, Frankfurt's an interesting city, a little little bit more corporate and banking-wise, but still an interesting place, and to use that as a springboard then to take some time for exploring. I'll be very honest with you, I haven't thought of too much about leisure travel for next year, as I said, we're just planning all the, all the, uh, the business travel. Wow, I was just trying to see if I could get the business out of Jeff, but I think I failed. Well, well let me share something with you. Actually, I'll, I'll preempt this by saying, because I often get asked, you know, what are my plans for retirement? And I do point out, you know, apart from the relative youth I have, which you commented very favorably on, <laughs> I do point out that both the new one and the previous incumbent, presidents of the United States and leaders of the free world, are both far, far older than I am. And if they can do their job at their age, I'll continue doing mine for a few years yet. I certainly want to see international business back into full swing, you know, not just for the venue, but for the country and for the city and for the economies. I do point out that I really want to see all the convention centres around Australia open and operating, functioning very strongly, because that means the industry is back. Actually, I digressed a little bit there. But what in terms of for the ultimate retirement, which is still quite a way off, we bought a house in Barrel, which is a beautiful highlight, you know, in the Southern Highlands with a garden, because we've lived in apartments for the last several years. And both my wife and I have a great love of gardening. And for people who aren't familiar, where's Barrel? Barrels in the Southern Highlands, about an hour and a half. Absolutely beautiful, stunning area. It's been a favourite getaway for Sydney people for 100 years. You know, a series of three or four major towns and a lot of villages. Uh, quite high, can get snow in winter, some winters, not every winter. But beautiful, beautiful gardens and flowering and, and, a, and a wonderful country life. So probably for the first break that I'm going to have, and I haven't really had a break for two years during this period, is to spend a little bit of time there but still retain my roots in, in Sydney and Belmain, where we've been since I moved to Sydney eight, ten years ago. So it sounds like the first place you'd book a ticket to isn't far away at all, and you don't even need a ticket to get there. An hour's half drive, but if the plans all come off and things progress and improve as they appear to be, we will certainly be taking not just ICC Sydney, but the other venues in our group, because we do some things together as well. We'll be taking our message back out to the world next year very strongly. COVID and lack of... Um, you know, second and third and fourth waves, whatever they are. So we're watching very closely what's happening in overseas cities. But I think the decisions being made in Australia by our respective governments, as frustrating as the state challenges have been, and, you know, in the lobbying that I've been involved in, both at a federal level and a state level, is what I started to term this sort of federation ping pong, where federal representatives would say, well, that's a great idea, but the states have to do it. And then the state the discussions we've had say, well, that's a great idea, but the federal government has to do it. So <laughs> that's been a little bit frustrating. But I think we're progressively coming through that process. So providing there's no uh, relapse or, you know, further waves of infections, and you'd think the great job that Australia collectively is, respectively has done, relatively speaking, will stand us in good stead. Although there's a, I do have a slight concern that there's still a lot of letters left in the Greek alphabet after Delta. Oh dear. But that's just in the back of my mind. But I think we're well placed to avoid having to take up any more Greek letters. Very, very positive about the future. Agree. Jeff, you talked about the importance of books, you know, reading books for leaders. What are some of your favourite leadership books? I tended not to read business books or leadership books. I tended just to observe people. But there was one book I did read, and some of the ideas within it actually coincided with ideas that were forming in my own mind as well from observation. That's The Seven Habits of Successful People by Stephen Covey. And this goes right back. And the two lessons in there were concepts that were forming in my own mind, and this helped to cement them. One of them was his is start with the end in mind. Always know where you're going, and it goes back to that destination concept and metaphor that I was talking about. Always have the destination defined. You might need to adjust it a bit on the way through, 
But the absolute responsibility on the leader of a team and an organisation is to define that long-term destination so people know where they're going, why they're getting out of bed in the morning, why they're battling the traffic. So start with the end in mind. And the other one was that concept of mine is never worry about anything you don't have any control over or you've got no part in the solution. That's just absolutely wasted energy. And Stephen Covey described it as the sphere of influence and the sphere of concern. And your sphere of concern might be, if you're not doing this properly, it's very, very wide, but your sphere of influence is just a tiny little concentric circle inside that. So you need to get those lines as closely aligned and and overlapping as possible. So you really only get concerned about things you can control and do something about. Because the way I used to explain it to people, that gap between the sphere of concern and the sphere of influence, that gap is ulcer land. You know, if you spend too much time in that gap, worrying about a whole lot of things you've got no control over or no involvement in, to me, that was ulcer land. You know, you develop ulcers worrying about that. Ulcer land. <laughs> That's not where any one of us want to be in, I don't think. You should never, never be in that. You know, always identify the things you've got some control over. You know, not wholly. You know, you never solve everything by yourself. It goes back to that, you know, everything that a leader gets judged on, assessed by what other people do. The involvement they make is critical. That's, that's where solutions live in your team. The most that a leader can do is draw them out and give them the space, give them the motivation, give them the inspiration to come up with those ideas and solutions. Wise observation. Jeff, how can people connect with you if they wish to? Probably through LinkedIn, either that or an email, gdonaghy at iccsydney.com. And I'd be happy to hear from anyone. I tend not to give unsolicited advice, <laughs> but I'll always answer a question. <laughs> which I'm sure people can tell will be great advice, I think. So, <laughs> Jeff, you tried to warm your way out of that one. I don't think that worked very well. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. I'm, I guess I'm Much just, to your credit. <laughs> I just, I'm just apologising in advance that, that if I don't get back to people in a big hurry, there will be a response, but I can't say when. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing with us your thoughts on leadership and just the stories and experiences that have formed your early life and how that's all played out to you becoming this pillar in the industry. Thank you for what you share with others, and thank you for your contribution. Well, thank you, Adeline. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it, and you really forced me to deep dig into my dark past as well. So that's, <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> but, and you've done that incredibly well. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I'd also love to hear from you. What do you need more of from this podcast? What do you like a lot and what not so much? Let me know by email, uponarrivalpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review this show if you like it. That would help other people find this show. I'll be back next week to uncover more stories and strategies for a successful future. Till then, cheers. Cheers.